Today we have a special sermon on the Song of Songs, just what you all are wanting to know about. Uh, means the best of all songs. Can you imagine? So for those of you who don't know, the book of the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, is a book that's all about romantic love. And uh, let me just begin by, you know, asking you, don't say it out loud. What is your experience of romantic love? How's it going for you? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about my, my first, it's just, I don't know why I'm telling you this. But my, uh, it's my, my first, you know, awakening of romantic love. I'm a young teenager, and, uh, and you know, raging hormones, all that. And so there's this, uh, there's this girl in our church, and I, you know, I think I like her, whatever that meant. And so uh, back then, <laughs> what you would, so there's a, uh, you know, I'm struggling already, but there's a... I think you call it like a, a place where you go, you don't go rollerblading. We didn't have that back then. It was roller skating. And there's a, it's like a gym or something. You go around and around and they play music. I don't know what you call that. Some palace or a roller rink. There you go. And so, uh, so I really like this girl. And, uh, you know, I was going to ask her, you know, to go around, <laughs> to skate around like what? So that was a big deal. And so I dressed up. I wore, um, I wore, <laughs> I wore beige velour pants. I know you're all jealous. And a purple shirt. I still remember this. Um, I don't still have them. <clears throat> and so I, you know, we're skating around a little bit. I'm trying to work up my nerve to ask her to, you know, hold her hand big deal, and go around, the, uh, go around the rink. And then as I'm skating, I smell something. And it's me. <laughs> so I'm a young teenager. I haven't quite figured out, like, hygiene just yet. And so I go, oh, sick. What am I going to do? So my solution was, <laughs> it's just everything is bad. But my solution was I had a jacket, and so I wore my jacket and zipped up my jacket, and I am dripping sweat. <laughs> and so I'm asking this girl to, you know, skate around with me, and I'm just perspiring profusely and can't explain. She's, why don't you take off your jacket? It's complicated. Don't, uh... <clears throat> so that was, my, uh, that was my introduction. But it got better. It got better. Uh, a few days ago, Debbie and I celebrated our 33rd wedding anniversary. And so, uh, <clears throat> so from, you know, velour pants and poor hygiene, I managed to find the most amazing woman in the world, and I've got to spend the last 33 years together, and uh, there has been no greater joy. And so, you know, you can look up from wherever you have begun. But... Uh, but what the book of, Song of Songs is about, it's, uh, some people say it's one poem, others say it's a collection of poems of describing the joy of desire 
and physical attraction. And that's what the whole book is about. Uh, for years, if you look at old commentaries, commentaries are books that are written about the Bible. And if you look at old commentaries, they didn't want to admit that. They said it was all about, it was an allegory of the church's relationship, you know, the, the bride, the church's relationship with the groom, Jesus Christ. And they almost ignored kind of what seems obvious to us today, that it was about physical attraction, human physical attraction, and human desire, romantic love. And then it goes throughout the book, if you read the book, it's quite steamy, and uh, there's lots of, you know, metaphors to describe things. It's not so much a description of something visual, it's, it moves beyond that. Um, you know, you kind of hope it's not visual, this is one of the quotes. Uh, Your waist is like a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Hey? <laughs> Women, don't you want a stomach like a mound of wheat? <clears throat> One of my favorites is your, uh, your, your, your teeth are like a flock of sheep, and not one of them is missing. <laughs> but, but, <clears throat> you know, that'll get your hormones raging when a, when a woman has all of her teeth. There's nothing quite like that. But, uh, <laughs> anyways. So, what it's basically saying is that love is the strongest human desire. And there's something inside of all of us that longs to fully know and to fully be known. And this book exalts that. It doesn't apologize for it and say that it's just part of kind of humanity's fallen nature and it's some kind of base lust and the goal of humanity is to suppress that lust and live on a higher plane of worshiping God and singing with the angels. It doesn't talk about that at all. It actually says that there's something valuable that God has put inside of the heart of every man and woman. And it's a desire to fully know and to be fully known and to express that physically. The setting of most of the book is in a garden. Now, what scholars uh, suggest is that this garden is hearkening back to the Garden of Eden. And so there's this desire inside of us to kind of go back to Eden, to when everything was without sin, and uh, there was perfect harmony, not only with God, but uh, uh, between Adam and Eve, and kind of trying to return to that place of fulfillment. As you read the book, what is fascinating about this, so you have this, uh, this great love affair being described, and then you have this incredible frustration also described. And the frustration comes in two forms. It's first of all the frustration of others kind of thwarting what you want to see happen. So at one point, uh, the woman is out looking for her lover, and the, the guards in the city end up beating her. And, uh, you know, that's kind of thwarting her desires. And so at one point, they're kind of endorsing of it, and at another point, they're frustrating it. And then the thing that I find most fascinating about the book 
is that it also doesn't ever seem to get fulfilled between them, between the two lovers. I'll just give one example of this. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. That's a super funny statement because, you know, how big is the bed? <laughs> like, where did you, where did you go? <laughs> Anyways, I, uh, you know, all night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. <laughs> That's a large bed. Um, I looked for him, but did not find him. And so you see this, uh, uh, in one version, it talks about being lovesick, where you're overwhelmed with passion, and it, it seems to keep escaping you. And just when we're together, I lose you again. And so you find in the book of Song, Song of Songs, you find this contrast between this intense human desire, sometimes filled, fulfilled, and sometimes not. So why? Well, we know as we flash forward into the New Testament, which I think makes it more clear, it's alluded to in the Old, that God designed human love to point beyond itself. Not in an effort to squash that human love, or to undervalue it, but to say that it can never fully fulfill the longings of your heart. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, uh, the two will become one flesh, referring back to Genesis chapter 2. And then it says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so for human love to find its ultimate fulfillment, it can't actually be an end in itself. It needs to be able to point beyond itself to the love that God would want to have with us. And as it finds its right context, it can then flourish. So you hear me saying that it's not meant to be a replacement for, but it is meant to point toward something greater than itself. So what we want to spend a moment today looking at is how do we guard our hearts from the idolatry of sexual desire and guide love's power to something greater and more meaningful. For as it says in Song of Songs, uh, love's jealousy is as unyielding as the grave. Uh, if we don't see human love in its right context, one of the ways that uh, it manifests itself is that we become jealous and that we become demanding and we need human love to completely fulfill us. And so if you're overwhelmed by uh, romantic love, if you're jealous, if you look at somebody who, who is married or has a better marriage than you or somebody who has a boyfriend or girlfriend and you don't or whatever, however it looks, if you find jealousy rising up in your heart, it's perhaps a sign that romantic love doesn't quite have a place in your heart that God would want it to have. So how do we... Um, how do we put this romantic love in its right place? There's three times in this book when this phrase is mentioned. 
And I want to draw it to your attention. It's in uh, 2 7, chapter 3, verse 5, and then 8, verse 4. It says this. It's uh, different in different translations, but I'm reading the NIV. <clears throat> Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. There seems to be inside of this book this idea of love. Uh, being something that needs to be contained or put inside of a cage almost, and you don't want to release that prematurely because it's strong and it's powerful. And as exhilarating as it can be, it can also overwhelm you. It says something at the end of the book that highlights this even more, and it's in chapter 8, verses 8 to 9. And these verses that... Often in wisdom literature, it concludes something. We read about that in Ecclesiastes last week. And it does something similar here in the Song of Songs. And I have thought about this verse for a long time, and it didn't make sense to me. And then in this study, it came clear. And the, the New Living Translation provides a particularly helpful interpretation or translation of this verse. And this is what it says. Song of Psalms, verse uh, chapter 8, verses 8 to 9. We have a little sister too young to have breasts. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? If she is a virgin, like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. So somebody is courting her, but she's too young. She's too young. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be a wall and protect her. But then listen to this. But if she is promiscuous like a swinging door, we will block her door with a cedar bar. So this is a fascinating, this is a fascinating thing that uh, uh, we have a, a young woman who's not ready for love to be unleashed in her heart. It's not time yet. Now, if she's pure, we're going to still protect her for a bit. But if she's not pure, we're going to bar her door and not allow anybody near her. It's a fascinating idea. What is being referred to here, and it's what we see sprinkled throughout this book, is that there's a time to awaken love, and there's a time not to. And there's conditions that, if fulfilled, then allow love to flourish afterwards. There's prerequisites to opening our hearts to love. There are two that I would like to highlight that I think we can find in Scripture that are prerequisites to awakening romantic love so that when it is awakened, it will be helpful and not crush us. The first is honor. In Proverbs chapter 5, this is what it says. This is talking about, uh, sorry, there's talking only about women. It can go the other way. But it's talking about an adulterous woman. And this is the advice that a father gives to his son. Keep to a path far from her, lest you lose your honor to others. I find honor to be a fascinating um, reason to not let your lust run wild. I don't know about you, but if you, if you listen to most people today, 
especially in Western culture, I think Eastern culture is different, but in Western culture, honor isn't even on our radar as a motivation to do something or to not do something. It's fascinating to me. But this is what it says, lest you lose your honor to others. In the New American Standard uh, Version, it says, or you will give your vigor to others. Don't uh, give away your best years and your best strength to romantic love. Don't do that. Give it away to something more honorable than that. As strong as that desire is, as God-given as that desire is, there's something even more to give yourself away to. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's just as to the point. God's will for you to be holy. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion, like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Again, that's the New Living Translation. What does it mean to live honorably? It means to be able to control your body. Job 31.1 says it this way, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. I have controlled my eyes. I've made an agreement with them that I will not look at a woman lustfully. If romantic love and human love is to be experienced the way that God designed it, it means that you and I, first of all, need to know how to master our emotions. And if you don't know how to control your emotions, they will control you. And you will find yourself being ruled by your lusts and passions. You won't be thinking. You'll just be reacting, following wherever your lustful desires take you. One of the things that I've said to my kids, and I'll say it to you as well, I do not believe that you're ready to date, let alone get married, until you have learned how to not look at pornography and follow up on that. Or if you're a woman, same, not looking at pornography, but not be defined by the love of a guy. And if you need that, You've not mastered, you, you've not mastered your emotions. And so you will, in pursuit of the fulfillment of that desire, you'll give yourself away in ways that will compromise you, dishonor you, and bring dishonor to the name of God. Are you motivated by honor? Is that on your radar? If you haven't figured out honor, 
you will have very little resources to walk in purity in your dating relationship. And even as you're married, you'll use your spouse for personal gratification and not for the sake of love. If you don't figure out how to submit your emotions to something greater than them, you will have the feeling of the Song of Songs, where there will be moments in your life that are thoroughly exhilarating. Sexual immorality, as it's been you know, described to me, exhilarating. Proverbs tells us that forbidden fruit is delicious. And so when you, uh, when you give yourself in to your lusts, you will be intoxicated. You will be lovesick. You'll be love drunk. And so there'll be that strong desire that was only good, at least for a moment, and then as high as that desire is, is as low as the desire of guilt and shame and dishonor will be in your heart. And if you haven't figured out how to master your desires, what you'll end up doing is just trying to suppress those as being old-fashioned and like the, you know, dishonor and shame. That's just, that's archaic. And I'm just going to focus on these happy moments. But a heart that hasn't submitted to honor will always have the package deal of those great highs and incredible lows. And of course, the worst part of that is, regardless of your feelings, you'll dishonor the people around you, dehumanize them, and make them as objects of desire and not as people to be loved. And this, of course, is the greatest of all tragedies. Can I please encourage you, before you awaken love, figure out honor. Figure it out. Figure out how to have a standard of righteousness that is not defined by your emotions and desires. If you can figure that out, then when your desires are more awakened, they'll have their rightful place in your heart and you won't take advantage of and use the people around you. And that's true for both men and women. You follow me on this? I mean, we might be at a place, I, I'll say you, you might be at a place where you, you like, forget dating. You're just trying to figure out honor, period. It's just not a motivation of yours. You're barely ashamed. The only time you're ashamed is if you get caught. But an internal sense of honor of the name of God I, uh, you know, I, I travel a fair amount, and 
I'm in hotel rooms and in airports, and you have access to things, right? I don't, uh, I don't look at things that I shouldn't look at because of honor. I don't care if you can see me. He sees me, and I am responsible to defend his name in my behavior. Doesn't matter whether you see me or not. God has had to work inside of my heart, honor. It's not about what I can get away with. And again, for many of you, that motivates you. I think I can get away with this. I think I can bend the rule with this. I think I know how to work the controls on my electronic device. I think I can figure this out. This could go well for me. And honor is far from your heart. You're not ready for romantic love. B, worship. Now, I gotta explain this because, but I'll read the verse and then I'm gonna unpack it. It says this, I would like you, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. I think I wrote all these verses. Yeah, there we go. First um, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. It says, I would like you to be free from concern. This is Paul writing to people in the Corinthian church recommending not getting married. All right? So there you go. Um, but let's unpack it and then I'll, okay. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is, con is concerned about the affairs of this world. And that's not necessarily a negative term. It's just not only about God in kind of heavenly matters. How he can please his wife. His interests are divided. Now, What is what I think is going on here? So I want you to be free from concern. Uh, I'd like you to figure out uh, how to be fully devoted to the Lord. Because if you do happen to get married, it will only be more difficult for you. I think that's what's being said. If you find it difficult to be wholly devoted to Christ now... If you find it difficult to live in honor towards him now, God help you when you get married. Like, it will be worse. Time and again, I hear people describe marriage as a solution for the longings that are in their heart. If I could just get married, oh God, I'll be sure to praise you and, you know, thank you and but if I could just get married, that's what I... And then all the parts of the puzzle of my life will all fit into place. As somebody who's done marriage counseling for decades, you are deceiving yourself. Marriage can be a hell of an experience. I... Uh, 
we're in Best Buy on, uh, I think it was Friday night or something, Thursday or Friday night, and uh, we're buying something. And uh, this uh, well-dressed business guy is talking with one of the other salespeople. And uh, I just, uh, I, I don't know, I was just, I was, he kind of caught my eye. And then I'm, uh, I'm just walking through the store looking for something. And I overhear two aisles over this guy screaming I don't know, wife, partner, I don't know who, screaming, cussing her out. Just, wow, like, that's horrible in private, and you are in the middle of a store screaming your face off at the one your heart loves. Clearly, you woke up romantic desire a touch too early. And you haven't figured out how to control your desires and to submit them to something greater. And you are violating a woman and destroying your life. Ah, but maybe you get sex. I'm not sure it's worth the trade-off. I've, 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 I've given this advice to people, and it now makes sense to me reading this verse. I actually didn't have biblical support for it. It just felt wise. And I think it makes more sense in the context of this verse. And it's this. I've said to people, if you can't have good friendships, don't start dating. It's one of those prerequisite things that we're talking about today. If you don't know how to be a good friend to somebody... Uh, it's only going to get harder if you date. That's not an easier relationship. It's a more difficult relationship because it's a more intimate relationship. And so this is how it goes. If you haven't figured out how to worship God before you date and get married, it will not, those things will not solve your problem. If you don't know how to redeem, bring the presence of God, the worship of God, into your friendships and work through how to have a disagreement with them. Work through how to be close to somebody when you don't like them for a minute. A friend, not a boyfriend or a girlfriend, just a, a friend. If you can't figure that out in the freedom of not being married, it's going to get, man, it's going to get hard for you. So you understand the nuance of this. I don't think Paul is saying, don't get married. He says there are some people that there's a grace for that. But he's not contrasting the worship of God with getting married. I get frustrated with preachers, and I'm sure I've done this, who say to single people, you know, just love Jesus and all your sexual desires will go away or something, you know. Uh, it seems a little mean. Uh, it's not saying that. It's saying Figure out worship now so that when that becomes a reality later, it will be blessed. But if you don't know how to find God now, dating will be suffering. Marriage will be hell on earth. 
there needs to be an order to our relationships that begins with worship, not somehow to replace romantic love, but so that it won't crush us once it's experienced. Are you following me on this? This is an important nuance to me. Romantic love is never a solution. Worship is always the solution. And as you figure out how to redeem parts of your life that are easier, then the more intimate and costly parts will also be redeemed when it's time for them to be awakened. The conclusion. The title of this sermon is uh, Wise Love. So let me ask you in closing, is your love wise? Or does it overwhelm you like a flood? Does it cripple you and demand satisfaction? Have you figured out how to say no to lust? Have you figured that out? It might take you uh, a few years or many years. It will not take you a few months or a few days. It will take you a bit to figure out how to not be defined by lust. Again, I have, you know, 10 kids. And uh, most of them have, are into adulthood. And it takes a bit to figure that out, how to not be defined by lust. Sexual lust being the most obvious, greed, <clears throat> selfish ambition. Has honor and worship been embedded in your heart before you awakened love? It's never too late to choose the prerequisites. Say, oh, I'm already dating. Oh, I'm already married. Great. Pursue honor, pursue worship. Figure it out. It's never too late for God to redeem your desires. It's never too late for that. To have a right relationship to love, let it be your servant and not your master. My friends, I think many of us here this morning are ruled by our emotions in general and by lust in particular. Ruled by it, married or not. Honor and worship put romantic love in its rightful place so that it becomes a servant of God and not a master of our hearts. If we could have the worship team come up. We're going to sing a song and then we're going to have... Uh, we're going to have full communion. And in this time of communion, I would encourage you to, uh, to clarify uh, what that symbol of Christ's uh, body dying so that we can be brought into right relationship with God. Um, will you um, crucify Last.
will you put it into submission to Jesus Christ? Or will it rule you? And if you let it rule you, you'll have incredible moments to keep you going. And it will enslave you. And it will not stop until it consumes you. Let's pray. Let's stand, please. If we could stand, I'd like to pray. Father, I confess that um, honor isn't, isn't always high on our priority list. We don't know how to be men and women of honor. We'd rather have our lust satisfied than be shown to be dignified, to be mature, to be one who is not mastered by our lusts, but they submit to us. Father, would you please embed a sense of honor in our hearts today? That we would be ashamed to look at a woman lustfully, to look at a man lustfully, to be defined by romantic love. We would be ashamed of that. And then, Father, would you lay as a foundation in our hearts worship, And that as we learn to find you in more simple areas, submit to you in more simple areas, you would add romantic love to our life experience. But, oh, Father, would you teach us how to uh, to find our, how how to experience human relationships in a way that doesn't steal away our heart or distract our heart or undermine our faith, but that we find ourselves being in you. And as we're in you, we know in in Genesis 2 that God said that it's not good for a man to be alone. So would you satisfy those parts of our heart? But would they be built in a right way? So we present ourselves to you first as a living sacrifice, asking that you would crucify lust, that love would win. Uh